Good morning, Crossing Church. How are you guys doing? It's, uh, I was talking to Kelly a couple days ago. It's weird. We haven't been here in a month. We uh, just dealt, dealt with COVID, and it just trickled through our house, one kid, one person at a time. It's been a, been a month, but it's so good to be back here with you guys. I'm excited. And it's a family Sunday, which I found out about 10 minutes ago. So, <laughs> sweet. If it makes you feel any better, I teach seventh graders, and every noise that your kid is going to make in the next 20 to 30 minutes, I've heard it. And I've taught through it. So whatever noise they make, if you're going to freak out about it, just let it go. It's okay. It's not going to bother me at all. And my kids are probably going to be on the floor coloring in about five minutes. So you're safe. Um, but I'm one of the elder pastors here, whatever term you want to call me. But it's, it's good to be here. We're, we've been talking about living life on mission. And uh, we're going to keep talking about that today. We're talking about what does it mean to go and share. Um, so that's kind of the big idea that we're going to talk about today. But before we jump in, let's uh, pray, and we'll get rocking and rolling. God, we, we love you, and we desperately need you, and we're here uh, to hear from you. So I pray that your spirit would rest here with us, that you would talk to us, that we would listen, and that we would have open hearts, open our ears to listen, and our hearts uh, to repent and accept uh, what you're going to tell us today, so... We love you and just pray that you'd be with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Kelly and I went to college at UNF, and for the first couple of months, um, or excuse me, for every couple of months, there would be this guy or a pair of guys that would come, and they would just stand in the middle of campus and start yelling at people. And they would start yelling at people awful things. Um, they, they were trying to get people to repent uh, from their sins, by telling everybody how awful of a sinner they are, and they were using unnice terms. At one point, um, I was, I'm no longer going to say the word because kids are in here now, um, but they, they called Kelly mean things, and they told me that I, I wasn't saved, that I was going to hell. Um, awful things um, that we didn't agree with. Uh, we were, uh, we'd, I'd been a Christian since I was 16, so I was sitting there listening to everything they said and just getting more and more irritated and aggravated because it was awful. And they were misrepresenting the God that I know and love, the God that chose me, that saved me, and that loves all of us. They were misrepresenting him. So it was frustrating, and my response was to just go yell back at him. It seemed like a great idea. He's yelling. I have a loud voice. I'll just yell back. After two or three times of doing this, I realized it was pointless because I'm not as belligerent as he was. I couldn't match his his belligerentness, if that's a word. I'm an English teacher, and I don't know that it is, but um, I'm going to use it anyway. So he was sitting there yelling at people, and I was talking to my campus director, my BCM director, our pastor, and just like, what am I supposed to do? This is so frustrating. Like, these people are hearing the wrong thing. They're hearing the wrong message, and they're getting mad rightly at this human being that's being really frustrating. He's being mean. And we kind of came to the conclusion that it, was a, it ended up being a great opportunity because what I would do and what me and a couple of my other friends would do is we'd just stand on the outside of the circle of all these people listening to these awful people yell. And we would talk to people about love and grace and Jesus and truth. That's what we would do. We would just talk to people, real people, honest, and just dig in. And it became a really cool opportunity to talk to them 
that I couldn't have initiated on my own. So it was in the, the midst of this terrible, stupid situation that shouldn't have happened that something I think that was really cool happened. We were able to talk to people about our faith, about what it really means to love Jesus, because what those guys were showing was the opposite of what we're called to do. Um, so we were able to dig in and just talk to people, love on people, and, and share with them, because they were open. They were listening to this angry guy yell, so it made it real easy to say, no, that's not God. God loves you. God wants you to know him, and that's what Jesus is there to do. Not to yell at you, not to condemn you, but to show you truth. So that's what we're going to talk about today is what does it mean to go and share? Should we stand on a pedestal on a corner and just yell at people? Fortunately, the answer is going to be no. But what does that mean for us? Should we all as missionaries just sell all of our stuff and move to Costa Rica or China or pick whatever random country you want to? The answer might be yes, but being a missionary isn't a job title you acquire. It's a lifestyle that you are given by God. It's something that we are called to do every day, no matter where we are. It's a daily thing. So the bottom line for today is we're called to live our life on mission daily representing God to the world. So we're going to go through Acts 16, 16 through 32, and then we're going to kind of break it down verse by verse. So if you want to open your Bibles, Acts 16, 16 through 32 is where we're going to be. They'll be on the TVs behind me. Um, if you're like me and you just carry technology everywhere, you can look it up on your phone. So, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave them orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely, having received this order. He put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. So that's the verse we're going to go through today. We're going to kind of go back and break the story down into pieces and uh, talk about what it means to go. So the first kind of section we're going to pull from is the big chunk, 6 through 24, 16 through 24, excuse me. Um, he's going through and they're encountering this slave girl. I think that's my kid. 
And this slave girl is walking around, and she's telling fortunes. She's, she's kind of like a fortune teller. I mean, that's what she is. And she's following Paul around, and she's talking about this guy is serving the most I got, and it sounds really great. But she, I, if you look at it and what she's doing, the Greeks don't know the God of the Jews. They don't know who Jesus is. They know who Zeus is. So there's a really good chance that she's walking around and mocking them sarcastically and talking about Zeus. So it's misrepresenting God. It's misrepresenting what Paul's there to do. So it's a confusing message. And after Paul gets greatly annoyed, which is interesting because why does Paul get greatly annoyed? Like, why doesn't he just go up to this girl and go, boom, demon gone, see you later? First thing, he sees it, it's gone. Now, I was thinking about it this week, and I actually talked to Spencer. It sounds weird, but I got to hang out with Spencer and talk with Spencer about this. And just kind of thinking more about it, like, it could have been easily that Paul's just assessing the situation. Like, why didn't he do it? It's not like he knew all of this immediately. Walking around, this girl's following him. Maybe she's going to repent. Is she demon-possessed? I don't know. What's going on with her masters? But what Paul does is he confronts sin. And that's what the first kind of point for this is, is when we're going and sharing Christ with people, we have to be willing to confront sin. We do it in a loving way. We don't obnoxiously beat people over the head with the Bible and tell them to repent, but we do it through relationships. We do it loving people because they need to know that God has called them to live differently. He's called them to live a life that honors and glorifies Jesus, and that is not the way that the world lives. So, Paul eventually confronts this sin. This is a form of human trafficking. They have, have this slave girl, and they make money off of her. I'm just going to leave it there because we have kids in the room, but that's what they're doing. And Paul confronts this demon spirit. And I think he knew when he did it that something bad was going to happen. I think maybe that's why he hesitated. Maybe he was waiting to see if it worked it out on its own. Paul's not Jesus. He's not perfect. But eventually he does it. He casts the demon out. And the masters come calling. We have to love people enough to tell them hard things. People that we love, people that need Jesus, that's hard. People might hate you, people might mock you, they might throw you in jail. But that's what we're called to do, to love people enough to confront them. It's not comfortable, it's not easy. But that's what our message is, is it's you're broken, we're broken, I'm broken. The only solution is Jesus. And if you don't confront people's brokenness, they don't need Jesus. So we got to be willing to confront sin, to do those hard things with them in relationships. And that's what Paul does. And he gets attacked, stripped of his clothes, beaten and thrown in jail. But the cool part of the story is it doesn't end there. Thank God. In verse 25, it says, At about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. I don't know about you guys, but if I put myself in Paul's shoes, I'm not singing and praying right now. I'm pretty ticked off. And that's probably an understatement, 
because uh, I don't like being beaten. I'm a big guy. People don't usually beat me up. It doesn't sound comfortable to be in chains. And uh, the Roman prisons are not like our prisons where people get food and air conditioning and they only have one roommate. They probably have a lot of roommates. They probably smell really bad. That's probably the least of their worries. And Paul is sitting there singing. What a weirdo. So the next point is let your joy scream louder than your words. They're sitting in there worshiping. Who does that? And the cool part is the prisoners were listening. What a random cool thing for the author for Luke to include in Acts. They were listening to him. What do you think the prisoners were thinking? Why are they sitting there singing? They got beaten worse than I did. What's so happy that they can sit there and sing and worship the God who seems like they've abandoned them? They must be crazy. Who are these people? Why are they so happy in prison? They didn't even eat today. How can they be so at peace when my life feels so out of control? They're in the same place I am. Are you joyful or are you frustrated? When you deal with difficult people, when you deal with difficult situations, do you respond with joy? James says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Do you find trials Joyful. I don't. They're not fun. I'm usually pretty upset during them. The next question is, why are they joyful? They're joyful because of Christ, because of what Jesus has done for them. Their joy isn't rooted in their circumstances. Their joy is rooted in Christ. Nothing can take that from us. When you love Christ and Christ has shown his love to you, you can't lose that. And that's what their joy is rooted in. It's not in their temporal circumstances. It's in the God that doesn't end and the God that chose to love them. Where are you placing your happiness? Warner talked about it a little bit. Is it in money? It's really easy to chase money, and it feels good to have a lot of it feels good to have a really chill life, just go to work, show up, get paid, come home, kids are perfect, that totally happens. You don't burn dinner, your wife doesn't burn dinner. Life is easy, right? Is, it, is your joy rooted in your circumstances or is it rooted in Christ? If it's not rooted in Christ, it's going to go away. Whatever it is, you fill an X void with it, it's gone. It's fleeting. It feels real good. I always use this analogy with kids, but to get a new iPhone, it feels great. But that iPhone is outdated in about two months. You send that one update through, my battery starts dying. It's over. So let your joy scream louder than your words. Going on to verse 26, suddenly there's a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken, 
And immediately all the doors opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. So the next point is God does all the heavy lifting. We just worship. I've talked to people in my small group, my college buddies, different pastors about what does it mean to share your faith? What does that look like? And I have one of my best friends is in India as a missionary right now. And if you just go through and talk with any of these people, and especially going back to like college and stuff, like it's why don't you share your faith? It's a very me-centric answer. I'm not smart enough. I don't know enough. I'm too shy. I'll say the wrong words. I don't know the right words. What if I screw up? It's very centered on ourselves. It's very me-centric. The problem with this thinking is it puts way too much emphasis on your ability and on a very lack of emphasis on God's ability. It ignores God entirely. It's putting it all on your shoulders, and it's not. God's plans aren't going to be thwarted by you. You get to take part in them, and that's awesome. But there is nothing you can do that's going to stop the God of the universe from acting. And the Bible is really clear that he wants to save everybody, like that he loves everybody and wants to do that. So you can't stand in the way of that. You just get to be a part of it. Paul doesn't save anybody in this prison. He's sitting there worshiping, and the other people are just looking at him like he's a weirdo. And then the chains open, the doors open, and Paul stays. You aren't powerful enough to stop God. Psalm, Psalms 3.8 says, Salvation belongs to the Lord. We don't offer or bestow grace upon people. All we do is proclaim, pro, proclaim Christ crucified and raised. That's it. 2 Corinthians 4.5-6 says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ, Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in the hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We all make mistakes. We're all going to make mistakes. When you try and share Christ with people, when you try and tell people that you love about Jesus, you're going to say something stupid. It's not an if, but it's a when, and that's okay. Because God isn't going to be thwarted by you making a mistake. And their salvation doesn't rest on your shoulders. Your job is to tell people. That's it. You don't save people. You're not pulling them from the fire. God is. And praise God for that because it, nobody would be saved if it was up to me. We're just called to be ready. That's what Peter says. Be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. That's what we're called to do. To be ready. To know you're saved. And the great part of that is you don't have to know every single verse in the Bible to do that. You just got to know who Jesus is. If you know Jesus, you can share your faith. It's your story. Jesus saved you. Going on to verse 27 and 28. It says, when the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew a sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. 
But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. We're all here. Can you imagine this for a second? Like, Paul and Silas aren't the only ones in prison. So in some way, Paul and Silas stopped all the other prisoners from trampling them on the way out. Like, the doors are open, Paul's sitting there, and they're all there. Why? It's baffling. You ever heard the phrase, when uh, God closes a door, he opens a window? What's going on? There's a door right there. Does that mean some doors we shouldn't walk through, even though they're open? Paul's free. The doors are open. God opened the door. And Paul stays on the other side of it. What does Paul do with this freedom? Paul leverages his temporal freedom for the sake of somebody else. So the next point is focus on loving people. This is not the easiest one. I think this is the hardest. There's something more important than Paul's immediate freedom, and that's the guard. He loved the guard enough to set his temporal freedom from prison and not happy place aside. So often we get wrapped up in our circumstances. We get wrapped up in what's going on in our life that's not perfect, that it's not the way we wanted it to be. I know I do. I'm a teacher, which means I'm kind of a psycho, and I like to control things. That's usually what teachers struggle with. Um, And for me, uh, when I see low kids, kids that struggle in my classroom because they can't read, they're on third or fourth grade reading levels and seventh grade, they're constantly failing. I just want to fix all of them. And I know the right things to tell them, and I tell them all the right things, and then they don't do them. I get real frustrated at that. Like, I told you what to do. Do you want to be a fry cook the rest of your life? No. You don't want to work at McDonald's when you're 35 with four kids. It's not going to be fun. But they don't listen. And I get frustrated because I'm wrapped up in my circumstances. And it makes it real hard to love them. We can't force people to be worthy of our love. We just have to love them like Jesus. We can't make them be what we want them to be so that then we can love them. Paul wrote in Romans, while we were still sinners, Christ saved us. In the midst of all of our jacked upness, and I have a long running list of all the stupid stuff I do in my head right now, in our most unlovable state, God lavished his love upon us. Paul loved the Roman guard enough to stay in prison knowing that he would kill himself if he left because it was that man's responsibility to keep Paul behind the bars. Paul stayed for him. He sacrificed his freedom so that that man would find true life, find true freedom. That's how we have to love people. As a teacher, I'm often reminded that kids don't care what you know until they know how much you care. And that's what we have to do. We have to love them like Jesus. And there's nothing easy about this. Nothing easy about it. But at least I have a good excuse, Mike. Uh, they're 12, 
12-year-olds are supposed to be kind of idiots. What do you do when it's a 38-year-old man or woman acting like a 12-year-old? Yeah, right? I hear it. Exhales. It's going to happen. I still have adults to deal with too, by the way. But just so you know. Do you love people in your comfort or do you love them in Christ? Do you love them through Christ or do you love them through your temporary, temporary comfort? That's the question you need to answer is what's motivating you to love these people? It's real easy to lose temporary comfort. It happens first and sixth period every day, the beginning and the end of my life. <laughs> They're there to steal my joy, and I got to hold on to every bit of it. It was actually a little bit of providence. I was writing this during first and sixth period, which <laughs> might be counterproductive to keeping them in line, but you know, it helped me love them better because I was not being nice when I was writing this. But what's driving your love? Last point, 29 through 32. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved you and your household, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. The last bullet point is preach the gospel. Preach sounds like a super preachy word. I did that on purpose. It just means tell people about Jesus. Why are you here? On Sunday, when you could be sleeping. Why? Tell people about Jesus. If you're, if you're saved, you know enough to preach the gospel. And if you're like me, I have to preach it to myself all the time. So you should be pretty good at practicing it. Because just tell yourself how much Jesus loves you when you don't feel lovable. When you make a mistake and repent and go back to Jesus, tell people about that. That's the gospel. When I'm at school, I have to remind myself that God loves this hapless moron as much as he loves me and more than I love myself. If it makes you feel better, I don't call them hapless morons to their face. <laughs> I want to, but I don't because I'm not a horrible human being most of the time. I have to remember why I'm there. Why am I at school? It's not to make money. God help me if I am, I'm in the wrong profession. <laughs> Why am I there? I'm there to tell kids about Jesus, but I can't verbally, because I work in the school district and the state, whatever, I can't sit there and preach the gospel all day because I'll get fired. But I'm there to love on kids the way Jesus loves me. One of the first things I tell them is that I'm a Christian, and that's the last time I'm technically allowed to talk about Jesus is when I'm telling them about myself. But the rest of the time, it's me doing my absolute best to not call them hapless morons and to show them that Jesus loves them when they're misbehaving, that I still find a way to root for them when they don't want to move.
there to show them Jesus. That's what your purpose at work is. It's not to make X number of dollars, and it's not to have whatever super awesome job you have. You're there to make much of Jesus, to tell people about him. That's your number one purpose in life. I remember in college, everybody wants to know the question, what is God's will for my life? And I watched some of them get so frustrated, they just shook in fear and didn't do anything. The truth is, it's real simple to answer that question. Your job as a Christian is to make much of Jesus, to glorify him. Outside of that, pick and choose, because you can glorify God in everything that you do, and that's what the Bible tells us to do, and all that you do, glorify and honor Jesus. How do we do that, though? We do that by loving people and loving God. Love them enough to share our faith with them, to tell people about Jesus. And that's hard. I was talking to my brother-in-law a couple days ago, and he reminded me that the ultimate way to show that you love somebody is by telling them hard things that are true. If you hold back truth from people when you know that it's absolutely 100% vital to their eternal salvation and you're unwilling to share it with them, you don't love that person. And that is a hard pill to swallow. I swallow it a lot. Because it's real easy when I go to lunch, which is when I see all my adult friends at work, to sit there and commiserate. That's what they love to do. Because it's a way for them to vent and get on with their day. The hard thing is to find a way to inject the gospel into that conversation. But that's what we're called to do. I have to remind myself that's what I'm there to do. And if I'm not going to do it, I may as well sit in my room and do nothing because I'm not accomplishing what Jesus wants us to do, which is to bring glory and honor to him. We're called to go, to go and share. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's what we're called to proclaim to everybody. Called to proclaim about the goodness and mercy of God. And it is available to everybody. We're God's people. That's what we're called to do. Let's pray.